0: Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear, and jewelry from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. Now, on this programme, as some of you may know, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive, and we discuss that. And then, of course, we ask him, or in this case, her, to read one of her own poems that's appeared in the magazine. And my guest this week, I'm delighted to say, is Ellen Bass, and she is the recipient of Nimrod Hardman's Pablo Neruda Prize and the Missouri Review's Larry Levis Award, to name just a couple of her honors. Welcome, Ellen Bass.
1: Oh, thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Now, the poem you've chosen to read is "Try to Praise the Mutilated World" by Adam Zagajewski, a poem translated from the Polish by Claire Kavanagh. Now. We have some sense in the history of poetry, and I'm thinking particularly of William Wordsworth, of the idea of mutability, the unimaginable touch of time. The idea of the mutilated is quite a striking one.
1: Yes, it is. And I think that is one of the things about this poem that uh, touches me so deeply. I think that in so much of poetry, we are trying to praise what is... Uh, hard to praise, as well as what is a pleasure to praise, and that question of how do we go on with the world so broken. Uh, in In my last book, the epigraph is from Rilke, and he says, Oh, tell me, poet, what do you do? I praise. But those dark, deadly, devastating ways, how do you bear them, suffer them? I praise. And I think that that's what Adam Zagievsky is doing here in this poem.
0: I suppose it's a feature of 20th and now 21st century uh, poetry in a way that it wasn't quite uh, with uh, the 18th and 19th century, 19th century predominantly in the case of Wordsworth. Things changed really uh, 100 years ago.
1: Yes, this this poem is very close to my heart. We read it every year at our Passover Seder. So it's a family poem. And I'm sure many people listening know that the Passover Seder uh, celebrates the Jewish liberation from slavery. But we also think about the people who are all over the world still enslaved and oppressed, but still it's a very joyous holiday. And There's lots of eating and part of the Seder ritual is drinking four full cups of wine, so it gets raucous. But when it's time to read this poem, all the talking and laughter settles and we all enter this still suspended moment together.
0: It seems particularly appropriate just at the moment with the refugees heading nowhere, the executioners singing joyfully.
1: Yes. One of the things that strikes me about this poem is when you read the title, Try to Praise the Mutilated World, there's almost an expectation that the poem was going to hammer you over the head with atrocity. And he's so restrained. Those two lines, and especially the line, you've heard the executioners sing joyfully, is such a chilling, horrible thing. But it's so simple in how he says it. He trusts just that small, simple line to carry it all. He doesn't bludgeon us. He trusts us, I think, to bring to the poem all that he has also experienced. There
0: seem to be quite a few literary allusions. Just that one, The Executioner's Sing, reminds me of The Executioner's Song. Yes. Norman Mailer. Right. That's
1: again, a part of the trust of the poem. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing in poetry in general, when the poet recognizes that the reader lives in the same world that he or she lives in, and we don't have to uh, explain what the world is like to the reader. The reader is, is bringing their own life experience, too. And it's one of the things I love. The images in this poem are deceptively simple. They're very spare. And I think it creates a kind of spaciousness, a kind of room for for us to bring our own, especially the sweet parts of the poem, to bring our own sweet memories in. He says things like drops of rosé wine and summer's long days. And he talks about gathering acorns in the park. Well, maybe maybe I've never gathered acorns in the park, but I have Comparable experiences that his experiences then resonate
0: with mine. Again, that line, uh, that phrase, "You gathered acorns," reminds me of Robert Herrick, "Gather ye rosebuds." Do you remember when he addresses That's the virgins? That's wonderful. Yes, I may, didn't
1: think of that. Yes, much
0: of time, but it's difficult not to, to uh, if one thinks about it for a, a few seconds more, not to bring that to the poem. I think.
1: Yes. He leaves so much room here. Some of the lines, he has this line, remember the moments when we were together in a white room and the curtain fluttered. Well, I don't think I've ever been in exactly that room, but when I read that line, I feel like I've been in it.
0: You know, we should hear the poem, Try to Praise the Mutilated World, by Adam Zagievsky, uh, translated by Claire Kavanagh, and read here by Ellen Bass.
1: Try to praise the mutilated world. Try to praise the mutilated world. Remember June's long days and wild strawberries, drops of rosé wine, the nettles that methodically overgrow the abandoned homesteads of exiles. You must praise the mutilated world. You watched the stylish yachts and ships. One of them had a long trip ahead of it, while salty oblivion awaited others. You've seen the refugees going nowhere. You've heard the executioners sing joyfully. You should praise the mutilated world. Remember the moments when we were together in a white room and the curtain fluttered return in thought to the concert where music flared. You gathered acorns in the park in autumn and leaves eddied over the earth's scars. Praise the mutilated world and the gray feather a thrush lost and the gentle light that strays and vanishes and returns.
0: That image of the gray feather from the thrush is really quite wonderful because uh, it describes at once something that's lost and also something that's lustrous. And that, again, is part of the uh, power of this poem.
1: I think so. I read an interview that he did that um this poem was inspired by a visit that he took with his father back to the Ukrainian Polish villages that had been that where people had uh, been forced to abandon them and be moved uh in the post-Yalta years and he saw in these villages that these Apple trees had gone wild, and the houses were broken, and nettles were growing over everything. And it was also so beautiful. It was a beautiful summer day, and everything was lush and growing. And he talked about it as this contest between beauty and disaster.
0: That was Try to Praise the Mutilated World, written by Adam Zagiewski, translated from the Polish by Claire Kavanagh, and it was published in the September 24, 2001 issue of the magazine. You come to the New Yorker Radio
1: Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to
0: stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate minority leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader.
1: What's happening in AI? I, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the the hot new thing. And we do the numbers.
0: So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's a speed at which things get more expensive.
1: Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Now, in the January 19, 2015 issue, The New Yorker published your poem Ellen Bass, Reincarnation, and you're going to read that for us now. There were a couple of things that struck me as I ran my eye over it uh, just now, and one of them was uh, the Mother Peace Tarot, which I'm afraid uh, I'd not been familiar with the Mother Peace Tarot.
1: Well, I can tell you about it. In the 70s, there was a tarot deck created by some feminist uh, Wiccans, and they had these wonderful, colorful, beautiful images of women and animals, very unlike the traditional tarot. And all of us 70s goddessy feminists loved the motherpiece tarot. They were round cards, and... uh, That was a time when women were uh, reclaiming the ancient uh, herbal remedies. Um, There's a a book that the feminist press put out called Witches, Midwives, and Healers. Mm -hmm. And all of this uh, demonizing um, of the witches was, was being then seen in a different context.
0: So, um, perhaps you'd read Reincarnation, and uh, then we'll uh, discuss it.
1: Reincarnation. Who would believe in reincarnation if she thought she would return as an oyster? Eagles and wolves are popular. Even domesticated cats have their appeal. It's not terribly distressing to imagine being Missy, nibbling kibble and lounging on the windowsill... But I doubt the toothsome oyster has ever been the totem of any shaman fanning the motherpiece tarot or smudging with sage. Yet perhaps we could do worse than aspire to be a plump bivalve. Humbly, the oyster persists in filtering seawater and fashioning the daily irritations into luster. Dash a dot of Tabasco, pair it with a dry martini. Not only will this tender button inspire an erotic fire in tuxedoed men and women whose shoulders gleam in candlelight, this hermit praying in its rocky cave, this anchorite of iron, calcium, and protein, is practically a Molluscan saint. Revered and sacrificed, body and salty liquor of the soul, the oyster is devoured, surrendering all, again and again. For love.
0: Reincarnation by Ellen Bass. When I read this poem, I must say that my mind went back to another poem in which the oyster features, and that's Seamus Heaney's Oysters. Of,
1: of course, yes. And,
0: and I wondered if there was a, in which the word bivalve, or bivalves, actually, in Heaney's case, uh, features. And I wonder if, as you were writing about an oyster, if you didn't in some sense have to sort of give a little wave to Heaney.
1: More than a little. The truth is that I wanted to write about oysters. I had been inviting food into my poem for some years, and it was reluctant at first, to enter, But then finally it did, and its entry was the poem that I wrote about the chickens, What Did I Love? And then I wrote an ode to the pork chop, and I wrote an ode to a peach. And I really wanted to write an ode to the oyster, but I was so intimidated because Seamus Haney's poem is so gorgeous and brilliant. And my tongue was a filling estuary. My palate hung with starlight. How could I— how could I even write about it? So I was uh, completely afraid. But then the idea of entering at slant came through reincarnation, which was another idea I'd been grappling with in poems that didn't work out for years. And so I was able to kind of sneak into the oyster through the back door. But I was very aware of Seamus Haney's a fabulous poem all the way through.
0: You know, I suppose however difficult it might seem as we embark on a poem that um, has been, you know, in a strange way, so owned, a territory that's been so owned by another poet, I think actually of Heaney's uh, poem, The Skunk, which of course is indebted to... uh, and in dialogue with Robert Lowell's skunk R, But at the end of the day, I suppose one has to say look, you know, um, skunks are still on the menu, as it were, <laughs> yes, along yes. with the oysters. Yes. You know, otherwise we'd ne- we would never do anything at all.
1: For me personally it's a hurdle and I admire poets who go with seemingly without trepidation and I am learning though what, what you're saying that those poems that came before us actually help us they infuse our poems um, I'm trying to I'm trying to absorb that attitude rather than just fear and trembling.
0: Let me ask you about this because it's a fascinating uh, thought. I mean, did you feel at any point that you would just get on with it and not give that little wave to tahini in the word bivalve?
1: Well, I think that bivalve was so necessary because in this poem, I had to find a lot of ways to say oyster. <laughs> and so I... I I knew that he had said it, and I thanked him for saying it, and I, had, I, I couldn't not use it because I, I needed everything I could get.
0: <laughs> well, I think the point is that this is another wonderful poem oh, which the oyster you. features, and it's, it's its own oyster, as it were. It's come into its own beautifully as a Molluscan scent. Now, I don't suppose the word Molluscan is much used. It's mm-hmm. a fabulous usage. Did you make that up?
1: I did make it up, and I felt very fortunate in this poem because there were some wonderful words available to me. And sometimes I'm writing a poem, and it seems there's a dearth of that particular word. And with the oyster, it just seemed like the vocabulary for oyster was just abundant. I loved the anchorite as well, and that was so handy. Uh, Thank goodness that there was a word such as anchorite that I could use
0: that's the uh, the would-be saint who lives in isolation one of the desert fathers perhaps
1: exactly and uh you know i was picturing the the hermit in its rocky cave and then that led to the anchorite uh, of iron calcium and protein
0: and then the molluscan saint again. It sounds as if it might be one of those schisms from right. About, yes, right. <laughs> from A the,
1: new order. <laughs> the
0: early Christian church.
1: One could do worse.
0: Well, indeed, and one could certainly do worse than read your wonderful oh, poem, you. "Reincarnation." Ellen Bass, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Try to praise the mutilated world by Adam Zagievsky, as well as Ellen Bass's poem. Reincarnation may be found on newyorker.com. Adam Zagievsky's latest book of poems is Unseen Hands. And Ellen Bass's most recent, Like a Beggar. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, and the Political Scene Podcast in the iTunes Store. And you may hear more poetry read by the authors in the tablet edition of the magazine. And I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, bye-bye.
1: You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes Store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is the Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records.